Welcome to Midnight Menu Plus One. I'm Margot Moss, and my co-host Ray Kanata is out of town tonight, so it's just you and me for the next little while. So here we go. Midnight Menu Plus One is a food lifestyle show on the podcast network, itsneworleans.com. Each week on Midnight Menu Plus One, we invite a member of New Orleans restaurant and food community to join us. And we invite them to bring along their own guest, a plus one. We never know who their plus one is going to be. Sometimes it's a friend, a neighbor, a family member, a fellow restaurant colleague. My special guest tonight on Midnight Menu is Steve Armbruster. Steve Armbruster is a recovering chef who now cooks only for family, friends, and for fun. For a time, mostly during the 1980s, he worked almost the entire spectrum of the New Orleans food scene, although never in the front of the house. He cooked in clubs, hotels, bistros, fine dining restaurants, movie sets, and food trucks. He also inhabited various intersections of food and music. He started a kitchen in the early days of Tipitina's. He was the original staff caterer at New Orleans Jazz Fest. And there is so much more to talk about with Steve, so let's just get going and introduce him. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining <laughs> us. Welcome. Well, it's good to be here. I hope it turns out to be a great pleasure. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> In the first few seconds, nobody's uh, nobody's crying. Nothing's falling from the <laughs> ceiling, yeah. Uh, the fake stars from our beautiful um, link, uh, indoor night sky. Well, I guess you you can't see them. The sun's still out. But it's kind of like the Sanger Uptown. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this is the Sanger of Magazine Street. <laughs> Many great presentations occur in this very vicinity. Does it inspire you to break out in tune? Mm, not quite. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Okay, well, um, Steve, I'd like to know a little bit about uh, your born and raised years before we get into interrogating you about today or, you know, okay. the, the recent past. But uh, you are born and raised in New Orleans, correct? Unlike Ernie Cato, I'm a Turo baby. You're a Turo baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I have seen the signs. That's where babies come from. And in my case, that's the truth. So I was born there. You were born at Turo. At Turo, yeah. And Turo has been around a long time. I'm not trying to date you or anything, but that Turo is... Uh, I think it was back from the 1800s. Yeah, so I'm pretty old. <laughs> you look great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um... It's all that goat. Infusion, you know. goat infusion, goat, goat glands. No, no, goat glands. No, I don't. I don't mess with any of that stuff. Wait, what do you mean? Eat it, drink it. I don't know what you mean. No, infuse I, I, it. Cell stem cell research. No, I, I knew this this fellow that used to go to Switzerland to get like injections of goat glands, and he said it kept him young. And he's been dead a long time. But any, <laughs> at any rate, <laughs> and you know who it was. I probably shouldn't tell you, but uh, he's gone. It was Rodney Fertel, who was Ruth Fertel's husband. You know, Ruth yes, from Ruth, Ruth Chris, Chris Steakhouse. And Rodney was well known. You're from here too, aren't you? Yep. Remember, Rodney was known as the Gorilla Man, and he ran for mayor a couple of times. And I think it was like in the late '60s when he ran for mayor. And his promise was um, he had two promises that he would bring gorillas 
to Audubon Park Zoo, which he did, even though he didn't win the race to be mayor. That was on his platform? Yeah, that was his platform. And the other plank in his platform was that he would let his racehorse graze on the grass in Duncan Plaza. Duncan Plaza. I'm sorry, which is, uh, where is that? That's the, the little grassy rectangle across from City Hall along the oh, way, like, yes. like between City Hall and the library. Yeah. And did he let that happen? No. No, because he, he didn't he win. He didn't have the opportunity, okay. no. Well. He didn't win place or show. <laughs> 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 but then in the mid-70s, was it? Yes. Towards the late 70s. No, actually, I guess it was the early 80s. Anyway, at some point, there was a new grocery store that opened up on Esplanade called, it was was called the Whole Food Company, and it was an independently created store here. There was first one on Cone Street, and then they opened one up on Esplanade. And they were later, you know, consumed by Whole Foods Market, out of Austin, and you know, so they were part of. Were they? No, uh, they were started independently by some people here, and Whole Foods Market was started separately and independently in Austin, and then it grew, and it eventually annexed a number of natural food stores around the country, like Bread and Circus in Boston, and the Whole Food Company in New Orleans, which just happened to have the same name. Oh, it's a coincidence that they had the same name and started the same time. Yeah. Okay, well, I was going to ask you about that. I wanted to hear a little bit about New Orleans and where you were going with that, but weren't you affiliated with that Whole Foods at one time? I ran the deli. When they opened that store on Esplanade, I ran the deli for a couple of years. And that was in the 70s? No, I think it was actually in the early 80s, yeah. Okay, but that's still uh, the beginnings of... uh, health food and yeah. the, the, the whole... Yeah, that's when the whole health food craze was just kind of getting off the ground, okay. at least in New Orleans. Before that, the only quote-unquote health food stores were these little box, small box stores that mostly just sold vitamins. Okay, and like... Uh, but there weren't any uh, health food restaurants like in the 70s in New Orleans or... You know, uh, I know there's a big surge today of like vegan and raw, and but but in the 70s in New Orleans, there was no. Uh, there was an occasional little, uh, you know, kind of like hippie co-op place. Like a grocery store, more like a c- food co-op, or no, like l- a little small grocery, little small uh, health food stores that like all natural. Which oh, was here all on natural, yes, Magazine Street. Well, there were a couple, but there was one, and I forget the name of it, but it was right where Taqueria Corona is now. Mm-hmm. And then, then there was All Natural, which was a little farther down Magazine Street, and it had a little. That's on the lakeside of Magazine Street, right? And they had a little, you know, cafe in the back. Before that. Like maybe in the very early 70s, there were a couple of co-ops that would have food. So, but how were you into health food? I want to know a little bit about your upbringing, like what your 
home life was like and how you ate in your home? Did you have like food traditions in your family or New Orleans traditions revolving around food that uh, inspired you? Or Well, yeah, I, I think that I probably ate just what anybody else in New Orleans ate. I'm not sure that's true, but we would always have, you know, red beans and rice on Monday. We'd have meatballs and spaghetti on, you know, Wednesday. Uh, we would always have some sort of seafood on Friday, uh, even, you know, maybe boiled shrimp or whatever. I mean, even if it was fish sticks, which I didn't really like that much. But actually, when I was a little kid, I used to think that things that came out of, you know, like, the, the frozen container was so exotic because normally my mother would cook everything fresh and then when we would have something that came right from the grocery store I it thought, was exciting wow. yeah because it was very foreign and exotic but we would you know have fried oysters we would have fish we would have and then we would grow some things like in the summer my folks always grew tomatoes and we had figs in the backyard and then in the fall we always had melatons that would grow and so we'd always have that and usually we actually I think pretty much were locavores although no one knew that term for example the only vegetables we ever really ate were bell peppers and tomatoes and eggplant and because they uh, all grew here because they grew here yeah part of the Um, diet and culture yeah and um Scallions, which we all called shallots, and um, I, I remember when I was in college, I went to France and I had zucchini. I'd never seen zucchini before. That's not a. Uh, I guess y'all didn't grow that in your backyard, and no, people, it wasn't in restaurant no. menus. And the only squash that I ever saw grown were these white ones that looked like flying saucers. Ah. Uh. What you are they those? called? Yeah, I, I know. know. I I don't know what they're. I don't I know. know. We just called them squash, and that but was the only squash. What I about thought Militon? There was. That's not a squash. Well, yeah, it is, but I never knew it was a squash. I just thought it was a melaton. <laughs> <laughs> now, is it melaton? I I, I uh, you know, we never say anything correct, but uh, you, how do you say it? Melaton. Melaton, and um, it's called other things, other places. Yeah, like the. Hispanics call it uh, chayote. Chayote. And if you go down to the Caribbean, like in the the French-speaking islands, they call it Christophine. Christophine. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Okay. So getting back to your um, family, so... Oh, so we would have ball crabs. You know, we would go over to the Gulf Coast and catch croakers and fry croakers and have ball crabs and, you know, just whatever. That's really local. and I uh, think so. Now, did that influence uh, your decision? What was your first time cooking outside of your house, independently, you know, for... It was actually when I started the kitchen at Tipitina's. Ah, what year was that? I think it was 1978 or 79. We had started Tipitina's in January of 1977. And I did other things. I, you know, like would help book the, the bands and do advertising and things like that. When we took over the lease on that club, the 501 Club, it was called uh, 
there was a, a f- pretty much full-blown kitchen in there. They even had plates and things, but there was a a stove and, uh, you know, three-compartment sink. But we never wanted to do anything with that. We had enough to, on our plate already to just try to run a little music club. But then I left for, oh, I don't know, six or eight months, and somebody else had taken over the jobs that I was doing, so I thought, well, why don't we try running a kitchen? But I'd never cooked before. I think about the only thing I'd ever really cooked was oatmeal. (laughs) And, um, you know, I made the occasional tuna fish sandwich, but I really wasn't much of a cook. But my mother told me, don't worry about it. If you like to eat and you can read a cookbook, you can cook. Because you can read a cookbook and get the general idea of, you know, what's supposed to go in things Mm -hmm. and how you're supposed to do it. And then if you like to eat, you can just taste whatever it is you're trying to cook and you know so what was the response and were you doing um the foods you grew up with and like local food pretty much we would do red beans and rice and we would have these specials like on monday nights um we would have dollar red beans and dollar spaghetti and our little motto is one dollar won't make you holla (laughs) and uh we also we got a lunch counter, or as a soda counter, whatever, that um, from the old Cats and Bestoff that had been on the corner of St. Charles and Napoleon. And when they discontinued that, we bought it. It was you know, like a long lunch counter with the little revolving stools. And so we put that in the club. And, you know, so you could come and have, like, like curb service. And um, so... Like on Monday nights, we'd have red beans and rice, but we'd have other things. We'd have um, pasta with oysters, and we would have some like barbecue. dollar? No, no. Okay. The the specials were uh, vegetarian spaghetti and um, red beans and rice. Okay. Let me. I want to step back a little yeah. bit because what? Who did you start it with, and what made you think at that age that you could be in the music? business and what 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 else was going on at the time musically well there was rhythm and blues on the radio when we were growing up and then it all sort of went away when you know the Beatles and the English invasion came in you know the mid 60s um, but even even after that you know we continued to have the you know iconic Mardi Gras songs, you know, the way other people would have Christmas carols, we would still have the, the Mardi Gras songs. So we would always hear, for example, Professor Longhair, you know, doing Big Chief and go to the Mardi Gras, but nobody had ever seen him or knew anything about him. And there really weren't too many places to go hear music. Um, and then, so I got out of high school in 1967 and I went to Tulane. And so during those years, there wasn't there weren't too many live music clubs and then the jazz festival sort of you know kicked into gear 1969 70 or so and we would start hearing some of these you know good new orleans musicians and we'd want to hear them again but they wouldn't be playing anywhere so we started throwing house parties and we threw house parties sort of like you know pop-up events at different places over the next three or four or five years, 
and we threw some at the 501 club we heard that the guy that was leasing the club wasn't going to renew his lease and so we just thought hey why don't we take over this lease and we didn't have any idea what we were doing or or how to do it we never had any real experience in the bar business or Mm -hmm. uh, in the music business but you know we didn't think it was hard so we we tried it and it was fun it was like you know trying to throw a party every night so so we did and so to make a long story short I um, started a restaurant there about a year or two into the operation it wasn't the greatest place for a restaurant so I stopped doing the restaurant there but I kind of like cooking so then I worked at a couple of hotels and I worked at a couple of other restaurants and probably the finest restaurant where I worked was Christian's restaurant which was not a religious thing it was named after the owner his name was Christian Ansel and he had been one of the Galatois families he had managed that so he started his own restaurant and that's where I met my plus one which is Mike Ward who just Ah. sat here Mike was the sous chef and he was a great cook still is and he taught me a lot well thank you welcome Mike do you go by Mike or Michael I'm sorry Mike Mike okay now you met you were a sous chef and this was in the beginning of at Christians at Christians okay and which um, in case people don't know wasn't it a church at one time it was a church it's and a beautiful building. The owner's named Christian, so he called it Christian's <laughs> Restaurant. Yeah. And everybody thought that the name came from, you know, some sort of f- feeling of reverence or whatever, but it wasn't. It was just a, another coincidence. Mm-hmm. A pun. Yeah. But it was great food, and uh, I think it was probably Mike that might have come up with the, um, the smoked soft-shell crab, and uh, there were the... Uh, poached fish with the trout mousse and crawfish nantua and chicken with blueberries and I like the redfish with the um, green peppercorn cream sauce. Now, th- those Mike are knew how to do all I mean, that. Yeah, Mike, where uh, did those ideas come from? I mean, that's, a, that's pretty progressive stuff and sounds very technically Well, the chef there, his name was Roland Hewitt and he called me Michael. Michael. And uh, he had trouble pronouncing Michael, and so he <laughs> called me Michael. And he used to live on a, what do you call a dead street? And I never could understand how someone could live on a dead street, but it turns out it was a dead end street, and he just uh. never said the end on it. <laughs> That's when I finally went to see him at his house. But he was a very creative man. He was, um, he was an excellent cook. When he first came to the United States, he was brought over by Christian Ansel to be the chef of Galatoire's. And he said when he flew on the plane, he carried a container of demi-glace with him mm. to show him what it was. So he was disillusioned with Galatoire's, and so Christian Ansel decided to open up his own restaurant and use him as a chef. So it was to our benefit that he stayed here. And that was, where were you before you started there? I mean, what were you cooking somewhere else? or were you Yes, I, I was cooking at LaRuth's restaurant, which was on the West Bank, Warren LaRuth. I, I don't know if you remember that restaurant. It was I know very the name, elegant. but I don't know. I, 
did not experience it. But Warren LaRue's was, you know, acknowledged as one of the great New Orleans chefs of all time mm-hmm. and probably a taste master. And he was very, very concerned with details. And if you were to eat there, you'd sit at a table and the waiter would come and put a pillow underneath your feet. <laughs> so you take your shoes off and you dine with your feet on a pillow. <laughs> it worked most of the time, except one time, and I, I'll never forget this, a woman was complaining about the, the bouillabaisse. She said, this bouillabaisse tastes bad. It tastes awful. <laughs> and he went out there it's and got her another fishy. one. And she, <laughs> she said, this still tastes bad. This is garbage. And oh. he said, well, I'm sorry, but we're not going to be able to satisfy you. And she said, well, I'm going to stay here until I get something good to eat. And so he had the waiter pull the pillow <laughs> out from under her feet. <laughs> she didn't deserve the pillow after and that. And she still sure. wouldn't go. And so he lifted up the table and carried it into the kitchen. (laughs) And they were left sitting there in just their chairs. Fantastic. (laughs) Now, um, what kind of experience did you have that you were uh, working in such a highly regarded and respected kitchen? I mean, did you work your way up or did you? Well, I moved to New Orleans from Albuquerque when I graduated from college. And I studied history of the American Indian. And I don't know exactly how it relates to it, (laughs) but they did have a steak. If you cooked it rare and burned, they called it Indian style. So maybe that was my specialty, my claim to fame. (laughs) You just went in? I just decided when I moved here to become a chef. And so I did an apprenticeship under Willie Cohn at the Royal Senesta. And then I got a job at LaRousse. And then I went to Christian's for about 11 years. Okay. And how long were you at Christian's? At Christian's? I was at Christian's for about two years. After I left Tipitina's, I decided I would like to learn more about cooking also. So I went first to the Le Pavillon Hotel and then to the Fairmont Hotel. The old Roosevelt? Yeah. Okay. And now the new Roosevelt. Yeah. And cooked, you know, there under some, you know, Germans and Frenchmen and, and also alongside some Vietnamese women. For a while, I was in what they call garmanger, which would do a lot of the, you know, the decorative work, you know, the tomato roses and that sort of thing for you know, buffets or large banquets. And Like ni- you need to learn knife skills for that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the, the well, there was a German, two German chefs that I worked for, and the food and beverage man was a Frenchman. But these Vietnamese women were, oh, they were more particular and demanding than the German chefs. And I remember one time we had uh, like 300 plates to do. And I thought that, you know, for one or two of them, I'd put the, the little, you know, cucumber slices at 7 o'clock instead of at, at 5 o'clock. Just you were taking creative yeah. license to. Oh, and these Vietnamese women just, you know raised us stink like <laughs> you know like hens that oh anyway so so I, I learned how to be precise and fast or you know and worked with a lot of food and then, then I went from there actually to the upper line and then to Christians yeah so I, you know I would work at different places and then you would kind of learn about as much as you could in one place, and then you would go to another place. That's what I was doing. 
that was a little bit before the day of people going to, you know, culinary school. So you sort of learned on the job. And it was a, a community and people were supportive, right? And, and it enjoyed passing on. It's like apprenticeship, It is, right? yes. Like more traditional. We would take um, externships from the Culinary Institute of America, from the other culinary school in New, Eng New England Culinary Institute, and we would also get apprentices from Europe. And they would be apprentices for seven years. And then they would come over and work for a year at Christian's. And meanwhile, at the Culinary Institute of America, or the New England Culinary Institute, they would produce chefs in like three or four years. They don't have the same type of um, ethics or and work structure. And how can you structure. really learn about how things should be done? I mean, I don't want to be critical but well they would learn a lot of things in their classroom and labs and then they would have to work world. for a year with their with their knowledge and they would learn practical application of it well yeah but you're saying nowadays it's three years and and you get a degree mm -hmm. <laughs> now um let me a ask y'all are um either one of you still cooking today we're, re we're recovering, yeah. chefs. You're recovering. <laughs> but we both cook almost every day, something or other. We just don't cook it in mass quantities or in, in um, multiple units like you would on a factory line, like you sometimes do in a kitchen, or you don't you know, do like seven things at once. But, yeah, we, we still cook. We're just not professional. And, and why is that? I mean... Mike, why? Uh, I already why know how to cook, so I decided to do something else with my life. And so what was that after you? Uh, I so became. You worked uh, at Christians for I worked seven at Christians, years? and then I worked at a hospital. I was an executive chef of uh, Oxner Hospital for 16 years. Wow, 16 yeah. years. Mm -hmm. That and is a lot. What what kind of numbers were you producing? I mean, that's a that's a different. Well, you have kitchen. 2,500 employees and 400 patients and, and catering and so it's a large amount of food. So now I, I'm a bamboo man. And th that's <laughs> how I met you. I was, I, uh, I love your, do you still have a location? We used to be right on magazine here across from Perlis. However, I closed that location. Now we're in the Art Egg Studios. Oh, neat. What other things are going on in that uh, building over there? I oh, gosh, there's all kinds of things. There's um, movie set production people. There are um, Re Rethink New Orleans is there. There's artist studios. There's a producing company. There's a recording studio. There's an absinthe distillery there. Ah. Do you ever uh, stop in the distillery and? Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> is it a uh, just like a production facility, or do they? It's where allow they make the absinthe, and yeah, you can, can go you there on Saturday. You can go in, and they have open sales for people on Saturday morning. But you can also buy it. It's called Red Toulouse. You might have seen it in, yeah. in the grocery stores. I've seen started. it at Dorniacs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they make rice gin. They make all kinds of things. So uh, tell everyone about 
the uh, name of your business and a little bit about what you do. Sure. And and how uh, people would be able to get in contact with you. The name of my business is New Orleans Bamboo, and we sell green building supplies, and we will be able to supply you with things in your house that don't emit any VOCs, things that are good for your body in your house. And we've been in business since 2007, and we also do things like custom window shades, and we install rainwater harvesting systems, such as cisterns, like <laughs> one you need to get repaired. <laughs> And um, we're doing fine. We're, it's, it's a very nice, nice way to um, change careers. I'm enjoying it a lot. So what was he My like to work with at Christian's? Was he uh, always oh had an God. answer for you? Oh, he just never would shut up. <laughs> it, was just, oh, it was just too much fun. No, it was, it was good because we, we worked real hard, and, and Chef Roland was a pretty stern taskmaster. He expected things to be done a certain way, and just that way, and and, and quickly, and, and right, and uh, the kitchen was very well organized, and Roland really was more of a master chef, cook. Now, I mean, some chefs are more like executives, and they do the ordering, they do the scheduling, they, they do a lot of the business parts of a restaurant. Well, he delegated all of that to Mike. So Mike was the, you know, the organizer, and so he kept things going, but he also knew exactly how to cook everything there, and it was great food. So, um, so Mike made sure that everything was done well, and that way you could take pride in what you did, mm. and so you liked being there because you were doing good things. But it was still fun. Great. So it was good. Well, um, before we hear about what you did after uh, your uh, cooking experiences, uh, we go to a part of the show called Off the Menu, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions you wouldn't be asked in culinary school or on a job interview, at least not a job either of you all would want. Um, but before we get to that, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about our sponsors for our show tonight. Uh, Petite Pet Care. If you're going out of town or your schedule keeps you away from home, or if you're uh, going back to the cooking world and have to leave your pet alone for 17 hours a day, Petite Pet Care have you covered. They come to your house so you don't have to board your pet or take them to doggy daycare. For loving care when you're not there, go to PetitePetCare.com. And thanks to our friends at Wayfair for giving our Midnight Menu Plus One listeners 10% off of everything on their fantastic Wayfair menu. Plus, they have three happy hours every day from 4 to 7. Chef Kevin White puts fine dining into a sandwich, and the bartenders put all kinds of great stuff into the cocktails. Okay, so as promised, I have um, some questions for y'all. One question each. Okay. I don't know if that's a promise or a threat. Well, we'll have an answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> y- y- yes. <laughs> if, we th- if we don't know, we'll make it up. <laughs> All right. These, these, they, these won't be too painful. Okay, Stephen, if you could cook for and dine with any musician, living or dead, who would it be? 
I think I would like to cook for Duke Ellington. Okay. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, and we talked about Christians, I remember reading that Duke Ellington used to like to have a steak for breakfast because that way he would always have his protein. Well, we had a dish at Christian's called um, Filet Bayou La Lutra, and it was a, you know, like an eight-ounce filet, and it would be grilled but, or you know, broiled, but there would be a poached oyster inside, and then it would be covered with demi-gloss. Mm. And I think he would like that, and I would like cooking that for him. Wonderful. And the Lelutra comes from the bayou where the oysters came from. It's in Hopedale. Okay, where my so fish is. Where, so w- it where would we fish. And I fish with them sometimes, yeah. Would y'all um, go fishing or have time to do that when you were at Christians? Did you know, were y'all doing that back then, or is that something you No, we out? didn't. But people would drive up and sell us fish in the parking lot. So the oysters would come directly from? From, Baila, from the Hopedale area. And what we would do together while we were at Christian's was go look for wild mushrooms. And I think that was because of um, the influence of Chef Roland Hewitt. I think he Mm -hmm. probably taught us both a a love and skill for looking for wild mushrooms, and we still do that. And where did you do that in at the time in New Orleans I mean when you were all were at the restaurant and do you go back to some of the same spots or are those we no usually longer? go to the other side of the lake well we go to the other side of the lake in the summer <coughs> to look for chanterelles but in winter months like like maybe in mid to late December you can get oyster mushrooms pleurots and a lot of times you can find those uh, on willow trees right in New Orleans Maybe oh, on the growing, they grow off the tree? Yeah. Okay. You can find them on the Batcher as well. There's a lot of willow trees there. And can you just go, uh, people just walk in there on the Batcher, or do you have to look like you live in that little area? Or the, you don't you go where those homes are, but just cross over the levee, and right the water's there. down that time of year. Just start looking at the trees. Yeah. I've actually found them in Armstrong Park and City Park. And do y'all, um, so obviously you take them home and, and do you cook meals together too and, and celebrate, you know, or you just bring them home and cook them for your families? and Both. Both. Yes. Yeah. We went on uh, just last. Yesterday. Yesterday morning. Yes, last and, and yesterday. And pick chanterelles. <laughs> so does this, uh, do they come up quick? Like. Three days. Three days after a rain. A rain mm-hmm. It'll come up. Because we had a landscaper at our house, and he was leaving, and he, I, I thought he had hurt himself, because he started, he was like, <gasps> you know, his arms up, and he was so excited, um, and we had chanterelles growing in our yard. Really? Um, where do you live? <laughs> I live <laughs> near uh, Metairie Cemetery. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I swear I did not see them there that morning, like... Maybe I didn't notice them, but and I wouldn't know how. How do you distinguish that that is? Are they completely unique looking? And they're very easy to identify because they're orange and they don't have gills. They're shaped like a trumpet sticking out of the ground, and they smell like apricots. Okay, 
So nothing else is similar that um, if I go back to the same spot and um, and he cut them so that they wouldn't he didn't pull them up he he cut them with a knife so that he wouldn't get the dirt from the roots. Yeah, and and do y'all do that? Is that a part of foraging? Like you have, you have to a pair do of scissors and you scissors. cut every one. Okay. But it's not because you're being gentle to the plant. The plant is actually under the ground. It's called a mycelium. And when it shoots up a mushroom, it's kind of like an apple on an apple tree. It's the way it propagates itself. It's like the fruit of the mycelium. So picking an apple doesn't hurt a tree, and picking a mushroom doesn't hurt the plant. But okay. when you pull it out of the ground, it has dirt on it, so you cut it to get the dirt away from your bunch oh, of mushrooms. Oh, so uh, it's, not, it's not a to maintain the Mm-mm. propagation. It's just... Just for cleanliness. Okay. Make them easier to clean. All right. Well, good. I don't feel bad that, you know, the gardener's been uh, pulling them up. Maybe I've been missing all these chanterelles, but maybe they'll come back. Oh, they will. Yeah, they'll be back. Okay. Well, wait, we almost Oh, you, you almost have another question. question. Yeah, that's yes. right. Don't so let him off easy. Michael, if you could cook only, if you could cook one last meal in your life, what would it be? Some type of seafood, because I love seafood. Maybe a trout mousse with some crab meat or something with seafood. Okay. It's so delicious. All right. See, that wasn't too painful. Mm. But let me ask you all about the, the, um, the fish dish at Christian's. Wasn't it the, how was the mousse made? And I want to know about this. The soft shell crab because it wasn't that a unique process to or is it a traditional no that was unique we invented that okay will you share with us what uh we would take the crabs we'll start with the soft shell crab the smoked crabs we would get the crabs live and we would put them in a chilled smoker that never got over 50 degrees 45 degrees and we would smoke the crabs for approximately an hour and when we would get the crabs out of the smoker, they'd still be alive. So they, they, then we would take them and, and serve them. smoke them alive. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is that why the temperature is what it is? Or is it... Well, that kept them fresh because okay. they, they wouldn't die. And so soft shell crab is better when you cook it right... When it's alive, when you prepare it. It's the best it's going to be. So we were able to get the smoke flavor into the crab without... compromising (laughs) you know the quality of the meat so that's probably why it was such a hit so you might have your your smoking box several feet away from the box where the crabs are and then you know the (coughs) maybe the the smoke would travel through a, a pipe and by the time it would get to say the refrigerator box it would be cool and and you might even want to put it in an actual refrigerator but just cut a hole in it and have the refrigerator still going but the heat could also cause the crab to dry and maybe shrivel too but like Mike said you wanted to keep it alive but you want to infuse it with the smoke flavor wow. so that's that dish mm-hmm. and the trout mousse mm-hmm. trout mousse is such a great dish it's one of my favorite things to make and I still make it and I I initiate people all the time i say hey do you want to taste some trout mousse what and they say no and then when you let them taste it then they're hooked you know then they have to have more but 
it's made with trout and egg whites and cream and that's just about it it's and a, it's pureed a into a like a you puree the fish you add egg white and then you add you add salt to the fish first and you puree it and then you add egg white and then you put in a little cream and then you have to put in a bowl over ice and stir with a wooden spoon in the rest of the cream till it's the right consistency delicious and then you lay out a, a fillet of say trout and then you you lay the trout mousse across it or along it and smooth it out and then poach and it poach it mm. wonderful well unfortunately we are coming to the end of our evening but i i have to, we're going to extend it a little bit because we have to know how what you did after you stopped cooking professionally and why i mean besides why like what do you do now oh, Stephen? well i'm a i'm a lawyer <laughs> and i became a lawyer because i got tired of being on my feet eight or twelve hours a day and working every weekend and, and also unless you own your own restaurant you're not likely, and even the, well, you're not likely to <clears throat> earn very much money. And most people who work as as line cooks or you know sous chefs or whatever get very little money and no benefits. And so I was getting to this age where I was tired of being on my feet all the time, tired of working every weekend, and I didn't think I wanted to open my own restaurant or. Or else, you know, sometimes if you get a job as, you know, like, the head chef at a hotel or a you know, big restaurant, you can earn a pretty good wage, but they pretty much expect you to work forever, you know, 60 hours a week or, or more. So I decided to become a lawyer because that also seemed like a service industry where you could help people and solve their problems. And a lot of things that I would read about that were interesting seem to end up in the clutches of lawyers and so it seemed like a good thing to do so I became a lawyer okay I, I did that while I was up in Boston and how uh, long were you in Boston well I went there for six years my wife wanted to go to school there she went to become an occupational therapist so I continued to cook there in restaurants for three years and also did some catering on the side and then started law school and still did some catering while I was in law school, but then when I finished, we moved back to New Orleans, and I've been practicing law here since then. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to know, too, a few people that you, um, y'all have served in your culinary careers in New Orleans, and perhaps uh, Stephen in Boston, I mean, in Boston or here, um, before you became a lawyer, what was your... Uh, well, Greatest when I was when I was at Tipitina's, I served the entire Rock and Doopsy band, <laughs> including uh, and Clifton Chenier. I, I also um, cooked for Stevie Ray Vaughan, um, Doc Watson, uh, John Lee Hooker. You know, several people you know who came through, and and I cooked for them. In Boston, I worked for this high-end catering company and we cook for a lot of like special events some of them like at the Kennedy Library I remember cooking for Nelson Mandela Ooh. 
I cooked for the entire Kennedy clan, including Jackie O and her kids and um, Teddy. Bill Clinton was there. I didn't cook for him, but I was about six feet away from the presidential tuna fish sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what he ordered, but it was it was made, I think, under the careful surveillance of a so, of a you know secret service guy. But somebody else did that. Benazir Bhutto. I cooked for her, and I remember she walked right by me. She was so beautiful in the long sari and bunch of people the whole Boston Mafia it was a wedding for some you know Mafia guy's daughter and it was at his big mansion on the top of this hill and there were like helicopters surrounding and all of the bodyguard chauffeurs were over on the side <laughs> while we were cooking that was fun fun Stevie Wonder I cooked for Stevie Wonder wow um, anyway do you have any uh I don't have any anything like that. that. I What about the the most uh horrendous experience you had besides the the woman with the uh that you personally had to deal with? There weren't that many horrendous experiences because being in the back of the house the maitre d or the owner or someone they will go out and deal with the people and you can stay in the kitchen you're isolated you can <laughs> vent you could say you don't have to be polite to yeah. them you're 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 being protected by the people in the front but we did one time have a party for elizabeth taylor ah. she was in town doing a, a play down sanger i believe and she requested that we open up early for her to eat before she was going to go down and perform so we did and um she brought in her entourage and there were probably about 30 people and they all ate and then when she got ready to leave the owner Christian Ansel asked her if he could take a picture with her at the front of the restaurant and she said no <laughs> <laughs> and they left <laughs> so, I, I don't know if you'd call that uh, you know nice or uh. anything but well, y'all, unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, I want to thank y'all for uh, being our guest tonight on Midnight Menu Plus One. Our guest this evening was Steve Armbruster, and Steve's Plus One was Mike Ward. And you can find out more about our guests by following the links on the site itsneworleans.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just Google Midnight Menu Plus One, and we come right up. Um, I and then I thank you all very much for joining us this evening, because I know uh, your time is precious. And thank you for having us. It was fun. Thank you I enjoyed so it. much. You're welcome. And uh, thanks tonight to Wayfair on Ferret Street. Uh, remember, you can get 10% off of everything on the menu when you tell your server you heard it on Midnight Menu Plus One. And thanks also to Petite Pet Care and to Monkey Hill Bar on Magazine Street, where they have happy hour every weeknight and now Taco Tuesdays. $2 tacos, margaritas, and sangria. Wow. See y'all next time on Midnight Menu Plus One, and Ray will be back. Thanks. Midnight Menu Plus One is produced by Grant Morris, Margot Moss, and Ray Canata. Our technical producer is Chris Kehoe. Our director of everything else is Mary Ross. Thanks to our sponsors who made tonight's show possible, Wayfair on Ferret Street. 
As a reward for getting all the way through to the end of the show, you get 10% off your tab when you tell your server Ray or Margot from Midnight Menu Plus One sent you. Also, Petite Pet Care for loving care when you're not there. Find those guys at PetitePetCare.com. If you'd like to be a sponsor of Midnight Menu Plus One, get in touch with us on our website at itsneworms.com or just email sales at itsneworms.com. If you'd like to be a guest or suggest a guest for Midnight Menu Plus One, you can do that on our website too. You can find photos from tonight's show, check out our blog and all sorts of other great stuff on itsneworms.com, including our other shows, Out to Lunch, Happy Hour, Vietnam, True to the Game and Mindset. You can hook up with Margot and Ray anytime by following Midnight Menu Plus One on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The awesome audio quality of the show is brought to us in part by Chris Kehoe's Magic, and the rest of it is done by PreSonus Audio. More information about all the wonderful sound recording equipment that PreSonus makes is at their website, PreSonus.com. Midnight Menu Plus One is a production of INO Broadcasting. For itsneworms.com, for all of us here at Midnight Menu Plus One, thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next week around the New Orleans podcast dining table. Ray Canada and Margot Moss will be back then. Good night. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.